You're listening to Tara Lynn's A Geek Saga podcast. This episode features audio from a discussion panel that was recorded at DragonCon 2017. today and um, I wanted to, the, the way I usually run these things is I'm going to allow our panelists to introduce themselves, tell a little bit about themselves and we've got, you know, some writers and everything here with us, so, um, you know, the, I'm sure they have books they're going to talk about. Uh, and then, you know, I'll ask a couple questions of them to get things started and, um, but I really like to kind of run these things in an in, in, in interactive way. So there is a microphone in the center of the room. It, and please utilize it because people at the very back, you know, may not be able to hear the people at the front and vice versa. Um, and also I want to make sure we hear you. So um, my name is Tara. I am an author and a blogger and a webcaster. Um, I wear many hats and um, I've been moderating and, and running panels at DragonCon for, I think this is my sixth year. Uh, and we have with us today, ladies, introduce yourselves. We'll start right here with Mike. Uh, hi, I'm Diana Peterfreund, and I am a writer, a novelist, primarily of books for children and teenagers. Um, I've written two separate series about either the end of the world or the potential for the end of the world. Um, and I was so excited to be invited to this panel this year. Uh, usually I'm over at the YA track. Um, but I was so excited to be invited to this panel because I've given talks to the Library of Congress about apocalyptic fiction and why we're so obsessed with it and why we've been reading it um, and watching it and telling legends about it you know, since the dawn of man. And also um, the fact that it's ladies' guide to the apocalypse, which makes me really excited because I think that right now, especially, it's a very great time for women and end of the world stories. <laughs> end of the world stories by women, end of the world stories about women. Um, the handmaid over there is blowing my mind. <laughs> um, the, like their whole parade is amazing. Um, so, yeah, this book. Oh, these are my books. This book is For Darkness Shows the Stars. It is a post-apocalyptic retelling of Jane Austen's Persuasion. It's set in a far future New Zealand. Um, this book uh, is for slightly younger readers. It's called Omega City. And it's set in the here and now. It's about a group of kids in Maryland who find the lost diary of a Cold War era rocket scientist. And they follow the clues they find in the diary to find an abandoned bunker city that he built for humanity back in the day, just in case when we go exploring. Hi, uh, I'm Marina Pantini. I have two books uh, out right now. Uh, the first book is Chasing Freedom, and it sounds really familiar, and it's because it was a Dragon Awards nominee last year for Thank You. <laughs> uh, in the apocalyptic um, category. Uh, it is actually uh, a realistic dystopia that is set just a few decades uh, ahead uh, of our times. And uh, to pick up on what you said, um, I believe that dystopias and apocalyptic fiction is basically a way for us to work out our different fears and to think of how we would survive, how our families would survive. So not all apocalypse comes from asteroids or from zombies sometimes, it just comes from government or technology or stuff like that. So 
this book had actually a female lead who basically also wanted what to make some trouble in a very regimented world, and it blew up into the whole innocent movement that she became ahead of together with her boyfriend. Um, this one will not stand up because it's just a novella. It's published by Superversive Press, but you should check out anyway because it's about awesome stuff. Um, it's more, um, I'm just going to go with the way other people described it. If you wanted 1984 that's not quite as dark, this is your thing. It has uh, basically four main characters, two men and two women, and most of the time is spent on a girlfriend who's fighting to save her boyfriend from the question the government official. Uh, hi, I'm Stephanie Kessler. I am a historian um, in my professional muggle life. Um, <laughs> and then I also write under the pen name DJ Gray. I do media reviews, I do short stories on Patreon, um, and I also do like, media reviews, book reviews, um, podcast reviews. Uh, I will also occasionally um, drop some historical essays in there from time to time. I also write in the post, pre, post, and during apocalyptic kind of genres. I'm kind of fascinated by them and have been ever since I found out. Um, took a course on the Byzantine apocalyptic literature genre. So it's, it's been a thing that's been around for a while. It's always fascinating to see what changes, um, principally from a historian's point of view, what changes, what doesn't, and how do human beings figure it out. All right, thank you so much, ladies. Um, so my first question, just to get things started, is a very easy, well, I don't know, maybe it's not easy. Um, who is, like, and it doesn't have to be any, it doesn't have to be somebody from the last year or two or three even, who is your favorite, you know, female character that is, you know, from a story that is set, uh, you know, in, in post-apocalyptic world, and, and like it, it doesn't have to be, you know, like you mentioned, um, it doesn't have to be like zombies. Uh, it can be realistic. It could be um, offered from The Handmaid's Tale, for instance. So uh, thoughts about thoughts about who your favorite character is and what makes that character your favorite? Um, I can kick that off because mine is both old and new, <laughs> um, hilariously enough, from the Shannara series, which was just recently a, a TV show. And let me tell you, that TV show blew me away for good and bad reasons. <laughs> but I really love the characters, pretty much all the female characters in the show, but really Amberly and really Eritrea for what they have to go through and some of kind of kind of what challenges are faced in this post-apocalyptic world where they're still struggling to, to save what they know from uh, a future apocalypse. And the casting in the TV show was actually really spot on for those two characters, so that was that was pretty awesome. It's so crazy to me that Shannara, like, you know, knowing that Shannara is technically like the post-apocalyptic, you know. Like... I, I just found that out right well, this very <laughs> second. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was high fantasy. No, no. The, the funny thing about it is, is that if you go back and technically, if you've been reading them as long as I have. Um, he has all these different series and no one thought, and we all thought they were connected and then he confirmed it down the line. Yeah, actually, these are all connected. So 
the Night in the Word series is the granddaddy prequel to, to the Shannara series. So he shows you essentially how he breaks the world and then how he remakes it and then how he starts breaking it again. And it's, it's really fantastic. Yeah, and definitely it's check out the show if you can because they give, they kind of give that away, but they do it with setting, and it's breathtaking. Some of those scenes. See, now I've got a different answer because there are things that I wasn't thinking of as being post-apocalyptic. Lord <laughs> <laughs> of the Rings is also technically post-apocalyptic. And so is Dune. Yeah, so is Dune. <laughs> well, any anything that involves end of the world, as we know, is it's technically post-apocalyptic or pre-apocalyptic or around it. In that vein, I am going to uh, mention two things and then we can probably take it from there. Uh, I am a huge fan of Atlas Shrug and it's not something that's usually thought of even in the universe of sci-fi unless you start thinking about all the things that happen. And it is also a dystopia because it's a picture of the society falling apart. Granted, it's slow but it does get, at some point, it speeds up. It falls apart very fast, and uh, Dagny Taggart is a fantastic character in her own right. I, I know some people say, well, Ayn Rand doesn't do good characters. I am read it at 19. Maybe it's a cliche to say it's something you outgrow, and I just found her so inspiring. And when you think that it was written in the 50s, and there's a woman running the railroad and all the other things she's doing uh, before it was even acceptable to write such a character. And also how she deals with the rest of the world is falling apart and she's trying to hold it together. And then of course in the end, I'm not going to give the point, the ending as to the decisions she makes, but she's not just led to it by Okay, this guy said so, so I'm going to follow Shrek to make your own decisions. And um, it's just great. The progression of the character is just very inspiring to me. Uh, and uh, on a modern note, I'm going to go, go in a completely different direction. I really love the way the Furiosa character and Fury Road was handled yes. because. Uh, there is a big rush to write female characters right now because it's popular. Everybody, it's it's not that it's new, but um, it's almost like someone opened the floodgate and we have a lot of them. So few get them right, and so few make them special. And I think she's special because she's an action character, but she's also an inspirational figure to uh, people who don't have a whole lot left. And this is something very special that I think a woman can do, can do that most men cannot. She's uh, also disabled, and that's fantastic she representation for those of us who, you know, yeah. so maybe don't, don't work quite the same way. Uh, I, mean, I, I thought, thought Furiosa and all the wives were just really well drawn. Like in, in a story that was so action-packed, you really got a sense of their personalities. Splendid yes. Ankarad mm -hmm. was a really interesting character who literally used her body as a shield. It was quite impressive. Well, and part, and part of that actually goes to the strength that George Miller had when he said, told his wife, said, here, here's what we've done, edit this. 
So, because the reason we have this amazing, fantastic movie and the way that we have it is because George Miller's wife, and I sadly have forgotten her name just at this very moment, uh, was the one that edited it. Yeah, there was a lot of, um, I watched that movie when I was eight months pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, man, it's too bad I'm having this baby before drag time. But I was I was just so struck by for being a movie about the escape of, you know, essentially sex slaves, like a harem, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It was um there was no kind of uh you know, leering gaze on these women who had been given these very skimpy outfits and stuff. Like, there's one scene where they're washing sand off them, and like, it, they're just washing, you know? It's like not like, ooh, slow motion, <laughs> there's water <laughs> floating or anything like that. Like I said, it's so many, so many ways this movie could go, and I was very suspicious because I'm just very skeptical. Uh, I almost never go to movies anymore until I hear from my friends just how good it is because. How we tend to overpromise and <laughs> <laughs> um, But I was really surprised. I was surprised by the way the fight scenes were done. I was surprised by the way the wife. Uh, they kind of all look the same, but they, each one of them was a different character. And it went all the way from brainwashed to the ones who actually got actively into the fight, which is very realistic. And it didn't feel like I was being fed some kind of message one way or another. It's just wonderful to You also had the, the blue balloon. Mm -hmm. And you had the, 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 the grandmas, the grandmas on the bikes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was nice, nice to see that too because you didn't have just your standard Hollywood 18 to 22. You you got a full spectrum of just exactly how awesome and powerful that you know women can be and that was inspiring on many levels. Yeah, it was the whole movie just really getting tense. I'm still surprised that nobody died on that set. Mad Max Fury Road is what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, sorry, should be like there. So since um, Furiosa has been taken, I'm gonna go and, and, and say two characters in YA post-apocalyptic fiction that I super love, um, and they're actually not the main characters of their books. <laughs> um, I adored the character of Shay from Scott Westerfeld's Ugly series. She's Tally's best friend slash frenemy slash enemy slash villain. Um, she was such a fascinating character. I actually got the opportunity a few years ago to, um, they put out a book of essays about the Ugly series, and I wrote about my grand unified theory of Shay and why she was driven to do the things she, was, she did and why she was so jealous of Tally all the time. Um, and Scott read the essay and he was like, yeah, uh, apparently you know my character better than I do. And I never realized that Shay was secretly in love with Tally the whole time, and that was just that every single argument they ever had. And I was like, yes, that's what it was. <laughs> um, and the other character that I just fell in love with, and I cried buckets over this character. Um, in the book How I Live Now the, by Meg Rossoff, the character of Piper, who's a little girl, she's Daisy's little cousin that survives with Daisy through everything that they go through, and there's that scene with the goat, and it's just, she is a pure, sweet little soul who survives so much, um, and and uh, Meg Rossoff could have very easily made her into this one-note, sort of like cutesy teddy bear, kind of like clutching character, and instead goes in a really
really, really interesting direction um, with her. And I like that book especially because it can show how the end of the world can be a local event. If you haven't read How I Live Now, um, it's about this girl who goes to stay in the countryside in England with her family. And the, um, the aunt and uncle like, leave for a weekend conference. And England is invaded by an unknown enemy. And she's an American, Daisy, the main character. And so she doesn't understand that the military can just come and take your house in England. Like, that's a thing that can happen because they don't have the Bill of Rights. Um, and so the military comes and takes their farm, and they're starving to death. And there's nothing they can do to stop it. They, they can't, they don't know what's going on. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful story, and it has so many hallmarks that we love about the Walking Dead, right? You know, like not, not knowing where, where is safe to be, not knowing where our next meal is coming from, all these things, but with an incredibly realistic breakdown of society. And it's not the end of the world, but it's the end of their world. They're in the middle of nowhere in England. There's no phones, no trains, no way of them you know, to get out. And, and it's a really beautiful, yes. It's called How I Live Now. It's by Meg Rossoff. Um, I think they made a movie of it, yes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the book's really good. <laughs> I, I can't speak to the quality of the movie. I don't know what I'm not sure how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, I watched the movie and it's like there was like a I think there's like a weird romance with like her first cousin. That's in the book too. Um, <laughs> she said there's a there's a romance between cousins. Is, is yeah, there. I mean, whatever. We don't think anything. Yeah, we're in a Game of Thrones world, guys. Now it's. <laughs> Um, okay, so and, and again, guys, like people in the audience, if you you know have like a question or a topic you would like us to touch on, please, um, if you can, use the microphone. Um, obviously, this little you know what happened just now is that's that's going to happen. But like, if you ha if you really want us to talk about something specific, if you come use the microphone, it's much easier for me to like see uh, that there's somebody there than somebody way at the back. Um, okay, so now. We, there's plenty of characters out there who are, you know, there's plenty of novels, uh, uh, movies, everything that are post-apocalyptic. However, um, there's so much, so much uh, material out there that involves, you know, strong women and that's not post-apocalyptic. But I want to know um, what character you think would, like, from a non-post-apocalyptic, you know, series or whatever, what character you think would do best in the apocalypse, like in, in the apocalypse or post apocalypse. Eleven? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eleven? Okay, yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? Oh, for someone who doesn't know, Eleven is a character on Stranger Things, and she has telepathic powers, and she's super tough. She's like Carrie, but she's only like 10. <laughs> or possibly 11, I don't know. <laughs> Instead, and she uses it to great effect against 
large quantities of man. I'm not going to go with spoilers because some really awesome things happen in the series with her. Um, and she can also be a warrior at the same time. Again, as an inspirational figure, but also as physically wielding weapons. So I think she would do well in any kind of uh, bad world environment. I think she would kill the heck out of zombies. Her power is mind control, but she's just uh, awesome in her own right. Okay, I, I may be cheating a little bit, um, but I'm going to say Wendy Darling. <laughs> um, and the reason I, I qualify that and say I might be cheating is because I actually have a novel series um, that's working with kind of that, that is the concept, is you have kind of a fairy tale apocalypse. You know, what happens when the realm of fairy and the realm of stories starts bleeding into this world. I actually really like that you picked uh, Wendy because we both picked these people who have very physical superpowers. But I actually think the people who might do best is the community builder, like mm -hmm. Wendy. You know, Wendy gets stuff done. Wendy takes care of people. Wendy like can get the entire Lost Boys crowd around her. That book sounds great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With Wendy's um, grown up Wendy, because again, historian. Um, you know, she she comes back to Neverland. Um, because she has this horrifying dream about World War One, and she wants to protect her people. So she goes back to Neverland, and then they find out <laughs> other stuff is going on. So she essentially becomes the pirate queen of Neverland and just starts just trying to make it. What, so when, when is this one now? Oh gosh, they're currently in second draft rewrites. So give me a year, all right? <laughs> but, Keep tabs on you. <laughs> but if, if you follow me on Patreon, um, there are snippets up there, and um, there are also short stories featuring other characters in that universe that are going to be posted up there. I, I mean, I think it's, I, when I wrote this book, which is based on persuasion, so obviously this Jane Austen heroine isn't about to pick up yeah, a sword. I, I, I want that book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> isn't about to pick up a sword, please. I had just finished writing um, a, a contemporary fantasy series about girls who hunt killer unicorns, and the, the um, the heroine of that book was constantly picking up swords and bows and arrows, and she was very, very physically tough, and she loved to be in fights. And I wanted to write something about how strength comes in so many different ways, um, that strong women doesn't necessarily mean a warrior, that there are other ways to be very strong. And so I, I love persuasion, and one of the things that I super love about persuasion um, is that Elliot is, uh, Anne Elliot, she's Elliot in this book, is an extremely um, shy person. She doesn't talk back, she doesn't um, fight with words, but her strength is in her own core of will. Um, you know, for, for being a book about like being persuaded not to marry someone, it didn't actually change who she was. Um, and you could push and push and push against her, and she wasn't, uh, you know, going to to give in. She was just going to like exist as, as strongly as she could. And so I wanted to write a story about a woman like that, a woman who, who had this sense of will and that that was where her strength came on, that she was not going to fight anybody physically. She wasn't even going to be a, you know, like some sort of political superstar giving speeches. Um, so I think that Wendy, um, you know, is, is a really interesting character because of where her strength yeah, and, and it's one of those things that, that when you really stop and think about it, yes, being able to defend yourself 
is a good and necessary skill, but it's also good to make sure you also know things like how to cook, how, how to mend things, or even just as simple as knowing which big box stores not to try and hit in the event of apocalypse, but <laughs> you really, if you want to, try and find a feed and pack store, mm. especially if there's one with a bed attached, because then you're, you're set. You've got your, you've got your farm quality stuff, you've got your food, and then you've got also your medicines. I think it, I mean, I just, I, I just am really interested in this topic because when we talk about the end of the world and a lot of properties that are end of the world based, they're very war based. Um, there's, and then there's a lot of stories like I love Sarah Connor from The Terminator and things like that. But you know, she's definitely a gun toting kind of of, of woman, and um, I think it's very interesting the idea that sometimes when you look at uh, male-created stories of apocalypse, <coughs> women are turned sexual objects, um, women are, you know, like, put in these things, but there's a whole other, you know, side to it all. And hilariously enough, um, one of my favorite apocalyptic stories is actually written by a dude. It's The White Plague by Frank Herbert. Um, which is honestly a terrifying novel, and I know a lot of people can't actually make it all the way through because it's it's so terrifyingly plausible that you wind up terrified about it. But he changes things in such a way that you have that the you no longer have one man. You no, it's not fifty fifty men and women anymore. So it dramatically skews things towards the women's side of power. And it's really fascinating the way he does it. It's also terrifyingly realistic and scary. But the way he just sort of plays with, with those dynamics. And so yeah, the, the women wind up on the better end of that. Because after all, we, we have one thing the men don't. We, we can create more humans. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's actually uh, underplayed a little bit on uh, the value the additional value that women bring as this said, as community builders, as inspirational players, as peacemakers sometimes. Um, sometimes, you know, when you have warring factions that maybe a woman can be a better negotiator at some point. Um, and this is, it's almost an untapped uh, theme out there when you think of uh, as I said, right now, a strong female character, it means they have to have a gun or a sword. And uh, again, coming back to the sword of truth, I was in discussion groups there, and people were so stuck on the fact that Kaelin cannot wield the sword because in that system of magic, only men can wield the sword, a sword, but there are women with other powers, but they just stuck, well, why can't she have a sword? Well, she has other things, she has other powers that um, only she can use, and there are no men who can use it. There are actually no women who can use it, because she's only one. That's another story. I kind of describe it as a Trinity problem, because they, they talk about how, you know, in the first Matrix movie, right, Trinity is amazing, she's so, like, she's the first person you see, she's jumping yes. over rooftops, you know, she's yes. obviously the strongest member of this team. 
and for some reason she's not the one. Like it's it's very annoying. Like, I took my kid to see the Lego Movie, and then I I have a daughter, and then I took her out to the Lego Movie because it became very clear to me that the character of Wildfire was totally a trinity. She was amazing at everything, but then stupid little Lego dude was the one, and so she was like, step aside, let him be the great, you know, Arthurian kind of hero. I was like, yeah. no, sweetie, we're gonna go watch something else now. <laughs> I, uh, well, first of all, I only will ever discuss the first Matrix movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 There were some cartoons. There were some cartoons. Okay, I'll give you that. The cartoons were good. The second and third were a little weird. Oh, no. No more and someone who, because without her, Neo would not be anything. He was still be at his computer clocking away and wondering what's wrong, because she's the one bringing him to that point. And I don't know necessarily that another dude, if another dude would open his door and like, what the heck are you? But you got Trinity, you gotta listen to her. She's compelling. So it's like behind every great man is a great yeah, woman. That's, yeah, if anything, that's. That's uh, a big part of it because yes, she can kick butt, but she can also do this thing. But again, some men are great at that, obviously. Uh, but uh, I think women are uniquely set up for that, and I think she does that, and then she does the rest of things, and she does support, and she makes sure he doesn't actually get killed. Time comes to that. So I, I think it was fine. I mean, I know that there was an expectation that she was going to be. I was just going to say, um, when you were talking about Trinity and um, the people who are a woman who should be the one, couldn't it also be like behind every man there is a great woman? Like the only way that those male characters can get to these points is because of the fact that they have these strong female presences to help them yeah. push them forward. Well, yeah, that's really not to be discounted. Yeah, I'm, I'm just tired of censoring men's stories all the time. Yeah, and there's a lot of truth to that because it's, it's, not, a, it's not a common thing for no reason. But I, for, for, for once, I'd, I'd like the dude to be behind me, like, making sure I haven't fallen over. Like, in the room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like in Mad Max. that you're just that mad 
Uh, we, we, we don't actually yeah. have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a whole different panel. I feel like that would be an after dark panel because <laughs> there would be, there would have to be drinking and, and, and anger yeah, involved. I, was, I saw a video actually after Jurassic World came out that was comparing um, Bryce Dallas Howard's character and also the poor secretary who was violently killed because reasons. Um, to, to, uh, uh, what's her name? The paleontologist, the paleobotanist from oh, the first Ellie yeah, Sally. Yeah. 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 yeah, from the first movie and showing just even though like the, how far we've fallen in terms of like who these characters are because she was such a fascinating character, she had so much agency, she was living her life, you know, it was it was a very interesting um, thing that I hadn't realized when I watched Jurassic Park yeah. and I was like there's <laughs> also something, I mean, yeah, we've fallen far away, but you also kind of gotta give Bryce props for being able to do some of those scenes in, some, in those heels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, that, that takes a kind of power and strength all its own. Oh, nothing against power. I mean, she did yeah. really good with the material she's given. But she's also, she's also kind of that stereotype where that this is this woman who has struggled so hard and she's finally gotten to be where she wants to be and she's only done it by acting like a dude. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. That's the problem and, of and women. Yeah, yeah, and also like weaponizing her femininity, but also acting like a dude. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of also showing that that's all dynamic there. Yes. So in the event of an apocalypse, what do you think is the biggest issue specific to women that women would have to face? Dying in childbirth. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Yeah, no, dying in childbirth is, is right up there, and, and along with that, I think um, right now in our society, uh, the burden of caregiving for the elderly and for children falls very disproportionately on women's shoulders, so you have women who already feel uh, responsible for the other people in their life, so a man might be able to be this cowboy who like, rides off on his horse into the apocalyptic sunset, and um, you know he, he does his own thing, whereas a woman's going to be like, oh my gosh, I have to of my mother-in-law who's wheelchair bound. I have two kids under the age of five. Yeah. You know, it's, it's gonna, I mean, you think about about these stories, you know, of wartime where the men go off to war and the women have to, yeah, are working the farm. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like, like, historically, women have been caregivers and men have gone to war and women had to protect what was left of civilization at the time. Yeah. I mean, yes, a lot of women went to work, but uh, if there are children at home, someone has to be with them and take care of taking care of them and yeah, yeah. the resources. Mm -hmm. I participated in this charity a couple years ago, and um, they were giving away baby carriers, like uh, baby Bjorns, to Syrian refugees because they basically had to cross Europe. And the women were holding the babies in their arms, so they were basically collecting used, you know, little baby backpacks mm -hmm. for people to for them to put their children in as they walked yeah. across Europe. Well, and and historically speaking. Uh, that's that's always been the thing. I mean, World War One depopulated Europe. Like we have, we lost an almost an entire generation of men. So, and the only reason we were able to bounce back from that is because the women were still at home. So there's there's give and take on both sides. But yeah, historically speaking, in the event of an apocalypse, if we don't have our access to modern medicine, if we don't, I mean. Without our access to modern medicine, the flu's going to carry off a whole lot of people. Oh, yeah. But yeah, historically speaking, without some of the advances we've made, yeah, absolutely, your biggest risk is going to come from childbirth. 
I mean, but another, going back to some of our favorite characters, another character that doesn't get enough love, and I think this is partly because it, it, it's kind of one of those stories that is an apocalyptic story, but not many people see it like that, Galadriel, Lord of the Rings. Because from her track, from the Cimmerian, from the Hobbit, from the Lord of the Rings, she's actually lived through two separate apocalypses. And the internal strength of that woman, she would knock them completely crazy. And, like, murdered everyone else. Yeah, seriously, like, she's not power mad. Yeah, she's not power mad, and she's actually still working to protect the people she can. And she struggles with it. And, yeah, she struggles with it. I mean, I mean, no woman, no woman will ever tell you they don't struggle with it because there are times you're like, no, I, I, I really want to just like peace out. But her internal strength to be able to do what she does and then still turn away the ring, which in the short term could make her life so much easier than it's been. That's you know, that, that's always been kind of like inspiring to me. No. I also, like, my other thing I was going to say, too, with you, but who is, what story is a really apocalyptic story? <laughs> I'm going to say maybe Jessica from Dune. Cause, yeah, because oh, she's yeah. the one you remember long after everything's over. And it's interesting because when, um, oh gosh, who the, who's the writer who took it up? Uh, Brian Herbert and Kevin Jay Anderson. Anderson, yeah. No, he's here. I know him. But, like, um, <laughs> but when they took it up, I think it's no accident that they were like, you know who's interesting? The Benny Jesser. You know who's not interesting? Everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and Erlen, too, in that respect, Erlen, who has grown up, who is trained to do this one specific thing, and she knows it and she resents it, but then kind of works it to her advantage so she can have the life she kind of always wanted. That that's also in there. So Dune is a great example of some of some of these women. Ooh, does Princess Leia count? Her world literally ended. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, we have we have several questions. <laughs> Mine was more on Mad Max, and I think it's like, with the exception of the first film, he's pretty much just a plot device that drives everyone else. I mean, he's he the coyote. Yes. He's, he's the coyote in the Roadrunner cartoon. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's the plot device. Oh. He, he's the, the, in case anybody in the back didn't hear, sorry, I just want to make sure everybody heard this. Um, Mad Max is like he's a background character plot device except with the exception of the very first movie so and all the subsequent how many were have there been four total okay so so for for the past you know three mad max movies he isn't even though they're titled mad max he is just kind of a driving force behind the plot and not actually you know he's not he really shouldn't be the titular character almost um and 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 it's one thing like not even with Fury Road, but you also see this with Beyond Thunderdome, you have Auntie Entity. Oh, Auntie I mean, Entity. Also, Tina Turner, I mean. <laughs> this panel's not long <laughs> enough. This panel is not long enough. No, it's enough. not. But you, also have, you also have, you know, women surviving, working with what they've got to to survive as long as they can. You also have, like, Savannah Nix, who, who is a kid, caring for other kids, and kind of works it out to her advantage at the end of that movie, I mean, like, literally, yeah, we could go on, because you've got, you've got Hunger Games, you've got the Dark Tower, you have... You have from New York. Yeah, you have, <laughs> you have Doctor Who. I mean, it keeps, like, Falling Skies was really great with some of the female representation on that show. 
I was um, really fascinated, you know, because um, The Handmaid's Tale book is such an incredibly um, claustrophobic read. You know, you're in Alfred's head, you don't really know what else is going on. And when I first saw that they were casting the commander and his wife as very young people, I was like, oh, that's not the story. But I thought they did such a beautiful job of it, and it really modernized the story because I would look at the commander's wife and I would see people that she reminded me of like on the news at night and I would see things and I'd be like, okay, I see why they, they did it this way. Um, and I thought that they did a really great job of showing how toxic the system they lived in was to yeah. her, even in a position of extreme power, it was also extremely toxic. Yeah, and I mean, the actress just killed it. Yeah, the, the book itself is brutal. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the, book the book itself is very brutal to read and I've only seen a couple episodes because they almost did too good a job with adapting it. So there, there's a couple of a writer on that show. Yeah, where there, there are a couple moments where I'm like, okay, no, I remember very clearly what's going to happen next, and yeah. I'm going to need a moment. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and with The Handmaid's Tale, um, one of the things that was that Alfred said I can't I honestly can't even remember if it was in the show or the book at this point because they've just like molded together in my mind um is that you know if they didn't want us to basically be soldiers or be in military they shouldn't have given us uniforms yeah, um absolutely. and you know so it's it's very much like these these are women who have just been so oppressed but they uh, still find a way to band together um, and, you know, eventually uh, one would hope, like, rise up. The book, obviously, you know, um, I don't know, spoiler alert, you guys, this book has been out for, like, 40 years. <laughs> Something like it's, it's been a long time. 32, is that what it was? Oh, so it's, like, about my age, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's uh, you know, in the end, the book just ends, and you don't know what happens, but like, you kind of, like, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I have to, I have to assume that there was some sort of uprising, because if I don't, then it's just gonna ruin my well, The author's notes in the end talk about like the Galadian age, so if you get the idea that this is post that, but you don't right. know whatever happened to author, you don't even know if the story yeah. is a real story well, or just propaganda. It's kind of funny, but like, again, going back to the whole historian thing, that those historian notes from that conference, I'm sitting there looking at this going, okay, the only way you even have this conference, the only way you're able to do that is if somebody got out mm -hmm. and somebody started, and, and, and somebody got out and somebody said, no, let me tell you what this was. So I, I, I like the way they're yeah. showing that in the show. Yeah. Like they, they do get outside of Cambridge, they do get outside of Opera's head, and you see people who who have gotten out, you see like um, or other governments saying, we don't know what's happening in Gilead, but it's terrifying. Like we're yeah. trying to piece this together, we're trying to figure this out. But, but yeah, you know, does that, that at the end, like if we had just had it dropped and we didn't have those notes. Right. Um, but with those notes, I have, I have to assume, I have to believe that, that she got out and then they were able to get her to people who, who were in a position of power to live and get them to listen to her. Yeah. Because her story is Terrifyingly compelling. Well, and, and, and just generally, too, with, with I don't want to talk too much about Handmaid's Hill because obviously, like, there's probably a Handmaid's Hill panel or six at this point. It's yeah. nice, yeah. So, so, um, so yeah. But, but yeah, it, the, the reason I mentioned it was just because um, 
you know, the, the commander's wife that you mentioned, she was basically part of that downfall. So a woman, a woman caused it, but then, you know, one has to assume you're reading Offred's tale, you're reading Woman's Tales, so she may have been part of what started to bring things back, assuming that things did, you know, get fixed in the end eventually. Um, so on that, like, on that note, you know, just do you think that women are more... Uh, do, do you think that women are, are just generally going or would be better at rebuilding a society? Than Absolutely, men? because if there's one thing, and we learned this from birth, <laughs> if there's one thing that we excel on is making sure it's, it's reading the right. And hilarious enough, um, at one of the writing workshops that I was, I was teaching at um, two days ago, Friday, whenever Friday was. Um, <laughs> that we were pointing out that it's a lot easier for a woman writer to write guys than it is for a male writer to write good women. And it's because literally from birth, we are taught how to read the room, how, how to kind of subconsciously suss out what might be a problem and, and like kind of go ahead and smooth all of those preemptively. There have been political scientists who've done massive studies um, that show that women in government build consensus, women in government build communities. I live in DC and, um, you God know. God bless. <laughs> I, I live in a apocalyptic city. I was going to say, like. <laughs> no, it's really like, I mean, I, I say that sort of as a joke, but also sort of not. My community has a lot of federal employees, and a lot of them have had their departments and their studies and their work completely shut down um, because the current administration doesn't believe in what they're doing, doesn't believe in their department, doesn't believe in their entire branch of government. Um, so my neighbors, have been coming to work. It's like, you know, like like the you know the people who live where the wicked witch of the east is and they're like, oh me. That. That's what it's like at the, the bus stops and the metro stations um, for these federal workers who go in, sit in their office all day, doing nothing, and then go home. Um, and basically they're trying to get them to quit so they can like lower the federal payroll or something. I think that's the general idea. But I'm not a political scientist, but they have done studies that show that women in government create these communities, they create these consensuses, um, and they work. And you know, they do say they study governments all over the world, and they're like, how many laws were written by women? Or how many, like, you know, compared to the percentages of women in this government? Um, when I was in Germany two years ago, uh, I read this massive, I mean, read all this stuff about Angela Merkel, who I hadn't really known, and she is a huge consensus builder. And one of the things she's kind of known for is if there's something that like is a very popular initiative in her country, even if it belongs to another political party, their party will just adopt it. So like they did a lot of solar power work so that they would be less you know, um, dependent on Russian oil because that was a way to get out from underneath the thumb of Russia. And that was like a Green Party thing. And so like the Green Party's like, we need to do more solar power. And then her party, the Christian Democrats were like, oh, it's a great idea, let's do that. And they're like, but, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely, because you also think of it, I mean, some, and some of it comes down to just training like little, just, just training. I mean, we're taught families. We're taught to keep all this straight. So, because the thing nobody really counts for in most apocalyptic fiction is who's keeping the records, who's keeping the genealogical records so that we don't wind up with founder's effects and we don't wind up with these horrible, you know, diseases that come when you intermarry too many times. 
So you're going to have and someone needing to keep those records, needing to keep all of those bloodlines together, keep all of those records. And to be honest, yeah, that job's probably going to fall to a woman because even even some guys will find it easier to tell certain things to a girl than they would necessarily to another guy. So, right. So that comes back to women uh, essentially uh, having to hold up to either keep civilization going or uh, chances are, in whatever form the apocalypse will take, there will be more women left than men. Uh, and we don't have to go far back. I mean, my background is I grew up in Soviet Russia. And uh, how long ago was World War II? There's still this residual thing. And it's a very odd society in a way uh, because on the one hand, it's very matriarchal because I think it comes back to back when men went off to war and, well, now Stalin just loved throwing bodies at the enemy because the technology wasn't... Uh, and he's a man. <laughs> um, so women had to give all of it together, keep the family together, so it became a very matriarchal society. On the other hand, uh, man almost became precious, and it, com it still holds. Uh, there was this very short, uh, I don't know, it was less than a season show of Russian community in Brooklyn. They're all American, second generation uh, girl comes to her mom. Her mom is teaching her how to cook, and along the way she's telling her all the things she needs to do to keep her man. Because it's just so ingrained in this country that came very darn close to an apocalypse. So we don't really need to guess because we yeah. know where we've been. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, the, that's the thing when you start really looking back at history is that a lot of history for a lot of places was written by guys. So you, you, have, you have to really kind of struggle through to find the, the sources and, and what life was like for females. They're out there. You just got to dig for them. Um, or make friends with the historian who's already done the digging. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have business cards up here. <laughs> um, it's actually a really great essay on this topic by Cameron Hurley yeah. um, called We Have Always Thought. And it's about her sort of discovery of this because she thought just because the histories that she was reading were by men, mm -hmm. that like they were the truth. Well, <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and, and, and coming from a military family background, you know, we, we've always had to say they also fight even those who stay at home. Mm. Because when you're at home, I mean, yes, your, your husband, your partner, or your brother, your father, whatever, yes, he's learning all of these skills, he's off at war. That means he's not home. So you then have to be both parents and in some cases an additional um, breadwinner because military salaries are not great. Um, but you also have, you have to educate have to, you have the kids, you have the house, you have all the bills, you have everything going on. And if you're an officer's wife, you also have the community of every wife and all the kids for every soldier serving as your husband. So you are automatically that person taking care of. Talk about community building, right? Yeah, talk about Which again, hi, born for to be an officer's wife. So you're automatically taught those skills. I mean, I was taught as like a four-year-old, okay, so this is what we do and this is why we do it. 
and this, this is why we're doing this, and this is why we're going through this place, and this is why we're, we're teaching you how to do these things. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, women are also way more resilient. No offense, all you dudes, okay? But we are way more resilient. <laughs> because, we, uh, because just, you know, we go through so much stuff that, that yeah, we will, well, we will Um, yeah, we have a Hufflepuff. We're speaking about like resilience and endurance. That reminded me of um, in Prometheus, the female character. How I don't know if y'all seen that. Yes. 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 Yeah. How she like goes through all this stuff. She's the only one to survive. And I just, uh, I know your your opinions about that. I love all those movies, even the bad ones. And news. Yeah, talk about post apocalyptic. Yeah, it's yeah. actually very symbolic too, because there are a lot of movies where like, the sole survivor is a woman, because again, uh, women carry on speaking yeah. weak. And, yeah. it, and it's it's not necessarily because she got shoved in the closet somewhere and, yeah. and the guys were all fighting. Yeah, it comes down to endurance. It comes down to re resiliency. It comes down to your sheer force of will sometimes. Well, and I think um, a lot of, you know, when you're looking at post-apocalyptic stories with female leads like um, Hunger Games or uh, The 100, and these are more like kind of YA level maybe, but at the same time, um, uh, the, I almost feel like women, the, 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 what these stories kind of show is not just that there's an endurance there, but possibly even that we have a women may very well, there, there may have been a scientific study about this, but have a better survival instinct. Yeah. Or drive, even. Okay, a absolutely, absolutely, that I would, if there's not a study, there probably is one. Well, and historically, um, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and historically. Well, that would make sense, again, because if you want men to go where the enemy is,
Um, so I just started sort of diving into the post-apocalyptic world, um, and framing, everything that we're talking about is framed from a very heteronormative um, <laughs> foundation. Do you have any recommendations for queer? Um, I, I was writing. It's, it's yeah. so much for my Patreon, like a dollar for short stories. Yeah, I, um, as a member of the queer community, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I like. I, because you have those communities that are already entrenched. You have those communities that are already marginalized, so they know how to keep a low profile. So those are going to be some of your best scavengers, because you already know kind of the ins and outs of the safe spaces, where to walk, where not to walk. What a great way of looking at it. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah. I, I wish I wish I could say I had suggestions, but let's be real. Like, there's still not a lot of representation in just media in general. Um, Post-apocalyptic stories, I honestly, other than like the 100, I can't. Well, yeah. we, we did talk about the Volvo right? Yeah. 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 But, but again, going back, and, and you cannot ever convince me that the Volvo Lady were completely straight. <laughs> okay. So I, don't, I don't think they were straight at all. Yeah. You know, in the, in the Handmaid's Tale, um, Alfred has her friend, who is Moira Wiley's character. Yeah. Moira, 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 Moira. Moira. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, for for queer characters, yeah, it's it's one of those that we're we're still kind of feeling that out. In, but unless you also adhere to my theory about Shay. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is out there. Um, so yeah, definitely take a card. I know I've got some in the works that are coming out. Um, and then I know a couple of my friends who are slowly but surely working on some of them. Because yeah, absolutely. There, there's absolutely going to be places where two women can go where a woman and a man wouldn't. Oh. Or, or where two men can go where two, two women wouldn't be able to. I just thought of one. I booked it last year. It's called Island of Exiles by Eric and Cameron. Um, and it's sort of a high fantasy, but there are, well, I don't want to but there are post developments. Yeah, uh, if I could make a recommendation that it sort of fits with, uh, certainly with the dystopian genre, Sarah Hoyt's uh, Earth Revolution series, Darkship Thieves. She has several uh, gay characters kind of on the periphery. I absolutely love The Few Good Man. It's a great, uh, it's a great story on any level. The hero is gay, and pretty much it, it's not just, oh, it's me uh, you know, throwing a gay character just so I can say a wrong one. It's actually a driving uh, force of the plot because most of the plot in this particular book wouldn't happen if it wasn't gay. I, I don't um, know what I And it's just, she also does an awesome way of having a man, you know, male love story that. It's just very sweet and tender and something you just don't expect. So. Um, I hate to interrupt, uh, but we are at our two o'clock mark. Uh, we've got literally one minute, so. <laughs> well, do you say, say, say what you were going to say. We have one minute. Uh, well, really quick, I yeah. just wanted to expand more talking about women uh, in our endurance in post-apocalyptic settings. And so I'm going to bring up uh, specifically Katniss. I really came to love her in those books because we really get to see her kind of rise and fall and, and break and come back from that and still live her life. Yeah. And, and I don't know how we got through this without talking about Katniss. <laughs> 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 stay, stay, stay tuned next year when this panel is three hours long. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you. Uh, 
Thank you for listening to Tara Lynn's A Geek Saga podcast. If you like what you heard, please check out my website, ageeksaga.com, or consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com backslash ageeksaga.